0: LinkedIn Presents.
1: I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, why aging is a superpower. I don't know how old you are. If I did, what would that tell me about you? If you're under a certain age, would I not take you seriously? If you're over a certain age, would I assume that you're obsolescent, a walking fax machine? I am 56 years old. To be honest with you, I'm not sure how to feel about that. I have been for most of my life unfazed by the aging process. Now I'm teetering on the brink of 57, which in turn is right next to 58, which is basically 60. That's an adjustment for me. 60 sounds old to me. And I see it. I see it in the graying hair, wrinkles, sunspots, and in the humility, the oddly calm acceptance I seem to have of my relative smallness in the cosmos. And yet, at the same time, I feel frisky, revved up, as energetic as I've ever felt. Like I have mountains to move, worlds to change, freak flags to fly. No matter how old you are, you're probably going through some version of this. A sense of periodic surprise at the passage of time, a recalibration, an acknowledgement of change, but maybe at the same time, a defiance of it, a resistance to being pigeonholed. Our guest today, Chip Conley, describes this experience as age fluidity, the state of being all the ages you've ever been and will be at the same time. He sees it not as a state of confusion, but rather as a choice not to be limited by a set of outdated associations we have with chronological age. Chip points out that we are collectively in a process of redefining what midlife is. Rather than a word immediately followed by crisis, as it is in many of our minds, Chip sees it as a transition, sometimes challenging, to what, for many, is the most gratifying phase of our lives. Chip knows something about life transitions. He started a boutique hotel chain in his 20s, sold it in his 40s, then joined Airbnb in his 50s as their in-house modern elder. He went on to start the Modern Elder Academy, the world's first midlife wisdom school. Chip is the author of the new book, Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age, which our curator Dan Pink called a vital and necessary book, a roadmap for the rest of our lives. Such a privilege to have Chip Conley with us today.
0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off.
1: Chip Conley, welcome to The Next Big Idea.
2: Thank you. Great to be here with you, Rufus. I am honored, to be honest with you. I, I, I love the, the work that you guys are doing. Well, thank you. We're so delighted to have you
1: here. Chip, I think I can say with confidence that you are aging right now. I'm aging. Everyone listening to us right now is aging. I see it, Chip, in the nooks and crannies of my body. I'm, I'm 56 years old. I see little bits of my father In these corners, I I see spider veins in my ankles and Mm -hmm. old person freckles on my arms and hands, (laughs) right? I think most of us have some mixed feelings about this aging process. I think a lot of us are in denial. But you've gone on record as being pro-aging.
2: You're in favor of this process. Uh, Why are you pro-aging? So the reason I suggest that I'm pro-aging and I said it on the TED stage last year and got quite an applause for it, which is interesting amongst all the biohackers at a TED conference. Right, um, right. The reason I think it resonates is because there are many playing fields upon which we live our lives. Mm-hmm. The one that you've pointed out at the start, at the start of the show is the physical one. And the physical yeah, yeah. playing field actually does get worse with age. You know, a six pack gets more expensive as you get older, and maintaining <laughs> yeah, one—if yeah. you know what I mean—with time yeah, and energy. Yeah. So I—I yeah, I, I don't know how to do it actually. If you have ideas, yeah, it. <laughs> I, I never had one. So I. Um, yeah. But long story short is I there are there's not just the, the physical playing field, there's the emotional playing field you know our emotional intelligence gets better with age. Yeah. Spiritually yeah. we get more curious and you some people say spiritual intelligence grows with age. Wisdom can grow with age. How we connect with other people can grow with age. And actually certain parts of our brain now we know a lot of things that don't mm-hmm, get better with mm-hmm. age with the brain. Short-term memory and we've <laughs> seen our president, you know, mess up a few words lately as well as the, yeah. the leading candidate from the Republicans. So As we get older, certain parts of our brain get worse, but actually other parts get better. So crystallized intelligence, as uh, Arthur Brooks quite popularized. Yes, um, yes. And I think he was on your show. He was. Yes, he was. So there are a lot of things that get better with age, but society in general is going to convince you that almost everything gets worse with age when in fact the U curve of happiness research shows that actually we get happier with age as well after a low point between about age 45 and 50 on average. Your mileage may vary.
1: I think you say in the book that... Young people, on average, overestimate how happy they'll be in five years. Mm. Older people, on average, underestimate how happy they'll be in five years. That's true, right? So we have a we have a problem with expectation management. And I think part of why you started the Modern Elder Academy, as I understand it, is is that we need to get together and help each other through these periods, these these kind of transitions in our lives.
2: Yeah. Do you mind if I talk a little bit about my story Please. here? Wonderful. So, I was a boutique hotelier, one of the first in the US in my mid-20s, started a company called Joie de Vivre based in San Francisco, created 52 boutique hotels over the next 24 years. I loved it till I hated it. In my late 40s, pretty much everything that could go wrong was going wrong. I did not know about the U-Curve of happiness. I did not know I was right there at the worst time in life satisfaction for for adults. Uh, But basically, each part of my life was sort of crumbling. And I got through it. I had an NDE. I died and went to the other side. And came back. Uh, fortunately, paramedics brought me back with the paddles because I had a, an allergic reaction to an antibiotic. Oh my gosh! How old were you? At the I was time? forty-seven. Forty-seven. Wow. Okay. Uh, during that time, I lost five male friends to suicide, ages forty-two to fifty-two. This is all during the Great Recession. And so, I note to self: like, okay, this midlife thing it sucks. Now I understand the you know the old trope, you know, the midlife crisis. And then went yeah. into my 50s, yeah. I, I basically did what we at MEA, at the Modern Elder Academy, call the great midlife edit. I really chose to edit a lot of things out of my life that weren't serving me very well. Um, and some of them were mindsets. Some of them were internal mindsets and belief systems, but sometimes they're external as well. And I got into my 50s and like, whoa, I sold my boutique hotel company at the bottom of the Great Recession. It's now a uh, Hyatt brand. And in my early fifties, I had some time and space for the first time in a long time. And I experienced what Mary Catherine Bateson, the academic calls a midlife atrium, where I had the time and space to reflect upon what I wanted to do, how I wanted to consciously curate the rest of my life. And you know, out of the blue, at age 52, I got a call from Brian Chesky, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Airbnb his first line to me on a cell phone call was, how would you like to help us democratize hospitality? And being a longtime hotelier, I was like, okay, well, that's a bold, you know, first question, who the heck are you? (laughs) And I didn't know much about Airbnb at the time. This was over 11 years ago. And I joined and, you know, the rest is history. I I was sort of like the person, the the modern elder, as they called me, but I was like the in-house mentor to the, the founders. And I learned like, wow, I love my (laughs) fifties. Didn't like my late forties, my second half of my forties, but I just loved my fifties on many, many levels. And that's when I started getting curious about midlife. Um, Maybe midlife is not a crisis. Maybe it's a chrysalis. The magical metamorphosis of the caterpillar to the butterfly The midlife for the butterfly is the chrysalis. I love this. And so in some ways, the way I look at it now, I mean, it's a very simplified version, but in our 20s, 30s, and 40s, we're like a caterpillar. We're consuming and producing. And then in midlife for the caterpillar, it goes into this dark and cooey time. Yes, it feels like a crisis, but it's actually where the magic and transformation happen. And this can be a really dark part of the journey. If we look at why is it that 45 to 50 on average is the hardest time of adulthood. There are a lot of reasons for it. Midlife is when you can start to come face to face with mortality, maybe because of your parents, maybe because of uh, friends or family members, maybe your own health diagnoses. That's one thing. During our 20s, 30s, and 40s, we've built up a bunch of expectations and hopes and dreams. And by our mid-40s, we can realize we're not going to become mayor of New York City, or we're not going to win a Pulitzer Prize, or we didn't marry our soulmate. So you sort of can see the future, and it isn't like you thought it was going to be. And so I I can keep going, but I mean, the the list is pretty long. and. It's a tough time. And and, yeah. and and can we dig
1: a little deeper, Chip, into your experience? Because you were an overachiever, right? <laughs> you were you were a very focused, driven, ambitious young man. You went to Stanford. Yes. You start this boutique hotel chain in your early 20s. You describe yourself as an admiration addict. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested to dig a little deeper into like what your <laughs> young experience was like. I mean, I'm sure it's a time of your life that you really appreciate and and uh, have a lot of fond memories from, but also exhausting. And it landed you in this place of, of, of just being worn out, I guess.
2: We all have our personality types and archetypes of how we show up in the world. And yeah. I am the oldest and only son of two firstborn. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a firstborn. Okay. And Me too. Um, yeah, yeah, and so there's a certain amount of responsibility that comes with that, and yep. as the only son, and I'm Stephen Townsend Connolly Jr., chip off the old block. So I, like, <laughs> there's a, an element of like I was supposed to be a better version of my father. Yeah, um, sure, sure. I grew up, you know, learning that love and affection and attention came when I achieved. And, you know, just as an aside, when I was 22 years old, I came out as a gay man. Now doing that in 1983, you know, when AIDS was on the cover of Newsweek was not Mm -hmm. an easy thing to do. I did it living in New York and lots of risks attached. And so I was that kid who had girlfriends in high school and college, was an all-American water polo player uh, who was recruited to play at Stanford, was in a fraternity. So I didn't fit the normal profile of someone who's going to come out at age 22 back in that era. And so I think in many ways, I wove into my persona and who I was and who I am, this idea that I am only as lovable as my last achievement. And I live for admiration. And so... I think one of the beauties of getting older is you can see your pattern recognition, you yeah. can see your shadow side, and I I write a little bit about this in the book. That if I'm always trying to be admired, I'm just packaging myself, and yeah. I just I've got to be true to who I am. And of course, at age 22 when I came out, that was not easy for especially my father, who was a Marine captain in the reserves. Um, wow, and. My process though I still I I still have admiration addict built into me but yeah yeah I have a sense of humor and I can see right. it I can see it a mile away when I'm doing it. Yes. And in the past it was a shadow part of me that was showing up without me conscious of it. Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of like growing up. Yeah. Is to grow up and see yourself be a first class noticer of qualities about yourself that you want to improve and get better about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when you say that you lost five friends to suicide in their 40s. I mean, that's kind of an astonishing number. Did they have similar paths to your own path? Um you were very successful, right? Uh, in, yeah. in your 20s and 30s, you were kind of a you were a star, right? You were you were building what I think became the second biggest Boutique hotel chain in the country, so your life was on the surface close to perfect, uh, or ideal, or enviable. How, when you look back on it, how do you think about that kind of disconnect between your outward life and your inner life? And and did you have have uh, how dark was that period for you? It was yeah, it was
2: very dark. So when I look at the five friends who took their own lives and one of them was weirdly named Chip, Um, you know, my best friend in the world who had the same name I had. He was not my best friend, but he was the best friend who had my name. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But he was still one of my maybe 10 or 15 closest friends. Um, The variety of reasons why it was everything from entrepreneurs who had failures during the Great Recession mm-hmm. and their sense of identity was way too attached to their business card yeah. to one person who had long-term depression issues, another one who probably had some substance issues going on that was all under the cover and nobody knew about it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that was what was going on with all those. And all, all of the men, and, and, and you know, men are four times more likely than women to do what they call successful suicide, which is such a terrible term. A successful suicide is actually actually dying in the process. Right. Um, so men, men do it more often, and it's partly because men are so much less socialized to address vulnerabilities and what's going on in their lives. For me personally, uh, because my life was just sort of crumbling around me, both in terms of my relationship. I have an African-American uh, foster son who was an adult at that point who was you know wrongfully going to prison. I was running a company I didn't want to run anymore and running out of cash and a uh, long-term relationship ending. And so uh, for me, I, I, I definitely had some suicide ideation and literally was on my way to the bridge, to Golden Gate Bridge to jump off and had a conversation with my best friend Vanda and Aretha Franklin came on uh, the radio singing Amazing Grace while I was talking to her. I was like, okay, wow. I get it. <laughs> you know, thank you for oh the sign. I'm, I'm not supposed to actually be jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. But I oh I got to the other side of that through social support and love. Mm-hmm. And um, But what I took away from it was like, my God, we have no schools or tools or rites of passage or rituals right. in midlife. You know, adolescence is something we're very familiar with, although the word... It, really only got popularized in 1904, we know Mm -hmm. that it's a liminal space between childhood and adulthood, and you're going through all kinds of transitions emotionally, physically, hormonally, identity-wise. And and so we have all kinds of structures to help support people during that time. But middle essence, which is a word that describes the midlife transitions that are hormonal, emotional, physical, and identity- is a a life stage that we aren't familiar with. Middle essence is a word that hasn't been popularized. And yet Mm -hmm. it's a time when we're going through a ton of transitions. But we do not have the peer group support in terms of the social infrastructure, nor do we even have a roadmap for people to understand what the heck they're going through. Mm -hmm. And so part of the reason that I created MEA... Was because I really wanted to help create the world's first midlife wisdom school, a place Mm -hmm. where people could have that midlife atrium, reflect upon what's next for themselves and reframe your relationship with aging. Because as Becca Levy has shown at Yale, when a person actually shifts their mindset on aging from a negative to a positive, they gain seven and a half years of additional life. And so I wanted to be a living laboratory for her work. I find it kind of fascinating
1: that we have all this structure around children and school and counselors and sports programs and psychologists and all this, like, all this structure. And then you graduate from college and it's like, okay, all done. You're out of the oven. Now now off you go. Right. And and we, we have some very effective institutions like... AA for people who are recovering Mm -hmm. from addiction, or YPO for people who've built wildly successful startups. But most people don't have these institutions in their lives.
2: And we used to have them a little bit. I mean- Yes, right. Church uh, and rotary clubs. We had church and rotary clubs and and, the the Robert Putnam, Bob Putnam's bowling alone phenomena of Mm -hmm, of just mm -hmm. how the social infrastructure of our lives has eroded. And- so, and, and I, I, let's, be cl- let's be clear though, like in the 1950s, if you're in Rotary, you weren't necessarily talking about, you know, the things that were problematic in your life either. You, everybody was sort of trying to yeah, look yeah. like, you know, they're keeping up with the Joneses. So right. um, part of the reason I think, Rufus, that we haven't figured this out is because there are three life stages that emerged in the 20th century and two of the three have gotten a ton of attention because they sort of got popularized earlier. So adolescence, we've talked about. Retirement was sort of a 1930s phenomena with Social Security, pensions, AARP, and retirement communities. And and no doubt, retirement and adolescence have gotten a lot of love. But we haven't made sense of midlife. And it was really the second half of the 20th century that midlife became a thing. But unfortunately, it got branded as this crisis And then I think also when you think about adolescence and retirement and the ages of people who are young and people who are old, there's a sense that they need support and love and caring and, you know, uh, they're a little bit in need. Whereas someone at 50 years old who's crying about the fact that they are getting divorced and they yeah, lost their job yeah. and their kids aren't talking to them and their parents are in a nursing home. Yeah, you know, you yeah. don't want to hear that 50 year old. You're just like, you know, buck it up. You're, you're an adult, like, you know, yeah. put your big pants on. And so what we end up with is a, you know, a soaring midlife suicide rate, which is more than twice what it, you know, more than twice as, as high as it was in the year two thousand.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's extraordinary. And, and, and it's, um, but the, the flip side, it seems to me of this pain that so many of us experience in in this kind of dark periods of midlife is that it, it turns out it's an opportunity for connection. I I, I love this, um, you know, Susan Cain has this wonderful yeah. line from Bittersweet, whatever pain you can't get rid of, make that your creative offering. Mm. And and my my kind of additional adjustment to that would be, make it your pathway to connection. Mm, the, the, pain, the, the pain you can't get rid of, right? Because, and, and I think this is what you've done with MEA, with Modern Elders Academy, yeah. right? It, it is to basically say, hey, let's come together Let's help each other through this period. And this has been a powerful experience for you, hasn't it? I mean, this has been, it's been, it's been a a form of service, but also a source of awe uh, and and connection.
2: In many ways, I started MEA because of my five friends, especially Chip, because I I wish that something like MEA had existed for them. So yes, it started six years ago. We've had over 4,000 people from 47 countries come to our Baja campus, uh, which is an hour north of Cabo San Lucas on the Pacific Ocean. It's quite beautiful. And then we have a campus opening in Santa Fe, New Mexico on a 2,600 acre regenerative horse ranch. And and so we've had all these people, it's average age of the people who've come is about 55. It's about 60% women and about 40% men. People have All races and and backgrounds because about half of our people are on some kind of financial aid. So it's not just CEOs of tech companies or investment bankers, but it's social workers and uh, physical therapists and firemen. Um, So it's really interesting. You have about two dozen people in a cohort for a week and the level of depth of connection is beautiful. So It is my form of giving back. I did very, very well with uh, my career, especially the Airbnb part of it. And I really wanted to bring to life in my life what Eric Erickson, the developmental psychologist, said. And he said, I am what survives me. And I really love that. So to, I, to, to do something that feels like, okay, this is going to survive me. My books, my school, the things I'm doing, I, I, the mentoring I do with all these folks, I love it. And I'm learning. I'm learning as much yeah. from them, you know, these the students who could join us the, as they learn from me. Because I am still a work in progress myself.
0: Amazing. Learn more at tiaa.org backslash promises pay off.
1: You just mentioned the Airbnb. Period, which I think is was such an interesting chapter of your life, and I think it was your the the young uh, leaders of Airbnb who gave you the name Modern Elder, right? They did. <laughs> Isn't that yeah. right?
2: Well, which initially
1: you didn't love, right? Was, yeah, no, yeah.
2: the yeah, and and, and and there's a lot of people who say like Chip, why did you ever name your school the Modern Elder Academy? Because yeah, a lot of people don't want to be elders, and because it sounds like elderly. But they said to me after I'd been there a few weeks, like, "Wow, Chip, we b- I hired you for your knowledge." what you really brought was your wisdom. You know, you're not just going to be mentoring us now and in charge of all of our hosts globally. You're in charge of strategy for the company because you are our modern elder. And I was like, oh, what are you talking about? Like, why are you making fun of my age? And uh, they <laughs> right. said, well... I'm,
1: I'm only 50. You were like 51. I was 52. Which, I, was, 50. I right, was 52. Which we know is a spring chicken, 52. I, I can tell you was a 56-year-old, that's a that's a spring chicken.
2: It's uh, Yeah, I still felt young enough, but the truth was the average age in the company was 26. So I was double the average age. And they said, you know, Chip, you are a modern elder, but let me tell you what a modern elder is. It's someone who's as curious as they are wise. And when I heard that I was like okay the alchemy of curiosity and wisdom I can own that and so 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 yes my time there was fascinating because what I realized pretty quickly was wow I better be curious because I'd never worked in a tech company before I was 52 and surrounded by people half my age who knew a ton more than I did around technology. And so while I was, you know, helping to run the company with the founders, I also needed to be the person in the room who was often the dumbest and and hopefully asking great questions. Uh so I often called myself a mentor, a mentor, and an intern at the same time. Oh, I like that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was I was an intern when it came to DQ digital intelligence. Right. But I was a mentor when it came to EQ emotional intelligence and a bunch of other things. And having the humility, especially after having run my own company for 24 years, all of a sudden I'm now in a company where I'm you know double the age of everybody. The founders Love me and are, they see me as a mentor, but I was also reporting to Brian Chesky, my mentee, who was 21 years younger than me. So yeah, yeah, how yeah. was that going to feel? And right. And how does it feel to n- not be the person having my face on the, the cover of magazines? Because my job is right. to make Brian successful. So I had to right size my ego in this process, and I also had to get used to the idea that uh, you humility is and vulnerability is a powerful. Um, characters are powerful character qualities Yeah. if you're showing up with some other things as well if you're just vulnerable and you know you don't have a lot else to offer then maybe it's not that helpful but if you have other things to offer and you have a vulnerability to you you're really a role model for others especially the know-it-alls in mm-hmm. in tech companies because quite frankly it's very competitive everybody trying to be the smartest person in the room yeah right
1: right and it, and that's probably part of what that that humility is probably a service to the culture and to the team dynamic and there's and we've learned that intergenerational teams that age is a form of cognitive diversity right and we know the groups oh, yeah. that are more cognitively diverse outperform groups that are less cognitively diverse, right? So so it's and there, there have been studies on this, right? A bit like a BMW and others and exactly. Google, right? I, I mean this is yeah. this is something that we should all we should be doing more of this.
2: You know it. I mean so I th- and BMW Google uh, and there's a bunch of others but basically to, to to describe it in a little bit more detail as Arthur Brooks talked about in, in from Strength to Strength, you know mm-hmm, you've got mm-hmm. you've got fluid intelligence when you're young, you've got a crystallized yep. intelligence when you're older. And, and maybe maybe we should what that what that means for, yeah, for those exactly. who don't know. Yeah. Fluid intelligence means you're fast and focused. You're really good at solving problems. You tend to do it pretty quickly. And because you're so focused, you can actually miss peripheral vision. And so when you're older, you get the the peripheral vision. You have yes. systemic and holistic thinking. You're able to connect the dots um to use A specific phrase from Dr. Gene Cohen in his book, The Aging Brain, you get four-wheel drive of your brain because your brain shrinks a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so you move from left brain to right brain more adeptly. You're able to see things, you know. And so to have a team that is full of people who are both fast and focused, as well as more methodical and systemic and holistic... You get the best of both worlds on a team, and so yes. age diversity is finally, after all these years, getting some attention in the mm-hmm. DEI world as a metric that needs to be reviewed in companies and on teams. Is how do we look at age diversity? So, Chip, to what degree
1: is midlife changing? Uh, I mean, I mean, we've had we've had an extension of the human lifespan, and I think you say that historically we thought of midlife as forty five to sixty five
2: now it it it's probably a broader range or even 40 to 60 yeah i yeah. mean it, today some sociologists look at midlife as 35 to 75 wow so that's a long marathon. Yeah. Um so and, and, and why
1: why both earlier and later like like the yeah. later side makes perfect sense because we're we're healthier, we're living longer, we're working longer, but why is it getting younger too?
2: The reason it's getting younger is because some of the qualities that used to feel like things that you felt in your 40s, feeling a little obsolescent, feeling maybe a little irrelevant maybe getting disrupted in the workplace um, are happening in people's 30s now. At MEA, while the average age is about 55, we've had people as young as 25 and as old as 88. Now, I think (laughs) what's weird about that is like, like, why would a 25-year-old be coming into the Modern Elder Academy? Well, the reason that one-sixth of the people who come to MEA are either millennials or Gen Z is because they're really curious about wisdom. So, in a in a an economy that has been so knowledge focused, and now knowledge is commoditized through AI and Google, et cetera, learning how to cultivate and harvest your wisdom, which is one of the things we we teach and and help people with at MEA, is a quality that you want at any age. And so, yes, I think that people are realizing at an earlier age that they are in midlife and also realizing that they need to figure out the tools to make it through midlife.
1: We had a guy named Morrow Guillen on the show who wrote a book called Perennials. Yes. I don't know if you've I, seen I, that, I, right? I, I've, I have the They're, book, yes. Right, yeah, yeah, which I think would be very relevant for you. And, and yeah. it's all about building a post-generational society. Yes. And and he makes the case that partly because of this combination of expanding lifespan, health span, as well as this incredibly transformative technological change that we're all experiencing, which is which is sort of disorienting and disruptive and maybe why a 35 year old today can feel like <laughs> like they're aging out um, mm-hmm. that really we should all be, Retooling every decade or two, going back to school, learning new skills, re—you you, know—that uh, rather than thinking of life as sort of a, a three chapter, yes. you know, affair, that maybe it's it's four, five, six, seven chapters, right? That we, uh, that we should have cycles of of reeducating ourselves and reexamining the world and, and, and reassessing like how how we can be most useful and most engaged.
2: Yeah, you know, he, he, that it's a good, it's a great book, and it sort of builds on in a book that came out a few years ago called The Hundred Year Life. And both these books talk about sort of the three stage life. You, you learn till you're 20 or 25, you earn till you're 60 or 65, and then you adjourn, you retire till you die. And that, Model the tyranny of that model is has been broken apart. So we should have more episodic lives. We should feel comfortable going back and getting a master's at 40, starting a business at 50, falling in love again and getting remarried at 60. So mm-hmm. the idea yeah. that, you know, we, we sort of grew up with the game of life, that, that board game that yeah, had one right. basic pathway through life. And you got, you had your little plastic car and you got extra plastic little points in your car. Once you got married and you had kids and you had your, bought your first home and you you know got your first promotion at work and it was like one path through life and today not only are there multiple paths but there's also episodes so that you can actually yeah you should be able to go back and and retrain or reeducate the challenge is we haven't really set up society for this very well and right, um, right. the idea of taking a midlife atrium or a sabbatical is hard so i i think the society has to start getting used to the idea that Wow, if there's college campuses that are actually gonna in the next five years go away because colleges and universities are ready to be disrupted. They're mm-hmm, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's a it as Clay Christensen a few years ago said, like of the colleges and universities in the United States are going to go away. Wow. Wouldn't it be interesting if you saw a beautiful liberal arts college in Western Massachusetts that actually got converted into a midlife gap year academy where people go, and spend a year to reimagine and repurpose themselves. So it's you know what we do, but for a year, and that they can actually save their funds to do that by taking 529 funds, which is tax advantage funds for usually right, for your college, right. kids' college education. You could apply that to yourself. So I, I think we almost like need a G, like a GI bill yes. for midlifers to help them stay in the workplace longer. And guess what, if we do this the right way, we solve social security because we have a social security issue of you know people are living longer, but we haven't really changed retirement ages all that much, and and we need to do that. I mean, I know no yeah. politician wants to say it because it's the third rail, and the ARP is going right. to be all after you. But the fact is, helping people to have a midlife pit stop where they get refueled with new education, new thinking, new new yes. perspective. That's a beautiful thing because it might mean that people stay in the workplace into their mid-70s instead of their early 60s. I,
1: I want to go back to college, Chip. I don't know about you. I I, yeah. I definitely do a semester or two. And and uh, you know, Dan Pink has this great line that in his book about regret, he talks about how the number one regret is not having done a foreign exchange program or, mm. or seme- a semester abroad. And so he, yeah. he he was pitching somebody should start a semester abroad. So you know, we we could do this in in uh, in Copenhagen or Florence or <laughs> yeah, would be great. But now I I see this in our future. And, of course, part of the analysis is recognizing that most people actually have more lifespan in front of them than they think, you, you say in the book. And I think this is how you open your, your MEA um, you know, five-day uh, experiences, right, is to do the math and realize that actually um, most people have misread the longevity data, which says average American male lives to 76, mm-hmm. but actually we have more time than that, Right.
2: Yeah. So if you're a 65 year old and you see that uh, the average man in the US lives to 76, you think, oh my God, I've got less than a dozen years left. But the truth is, just because you got to 65 means you probably have a pretty good chance of getting to 85. So we have a pretty poor longevity literacy. And meaning if we don't really understand how much longer we might live, we don't save properly, we don't take care of our body properly. And we may sort of start just, you know, hanging out as a couch potato because the average American retiree watches 47 hours of TV a week. That's such an astonishing data point. It's really
1: really depressing. I mean, there's some good programming out there, but not that much.
2: (laughs) 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 No, definitely not. So I think helping people to understand that, wow, you've got a lot more life ahead of you. You know, the average age of people at MEA is 54 to 55. If, If... the average age they think they're going to live till is ninety. Most of us don't realize that fifty-four is exactly halfway between eighteen and ninety. So at yeah. at fifty-four, you have as many adult years ahead of you as you have behind you, and you can think back to being eighteen as like, wow, that's a lot of life. But most people don't think that way, and this is why you know I think this question of like that we like to ask at Mea around. Um, speaking of regret, uh, what is it that you wish you'd learned or done 10 years ago that you know now or have done now? And then more importantly, 10 years from now, what will you regret if you don't learn it or do it now? It's yeah. a really important yeah. question. It's yeah. When I was 57, I uh, asked that question to myself. I'm 63 now. And it's part of the reason why I started surfing and I started learning Amazing. Spanish, living on a, on a beach in yeah. Mexico, because it was going to be harder 10 years from now at 67 than yeah. at 57. And this lifespan
1: math, uh, th- and thank you for sharing that. That that does put a bounce in my step. Um, <laughs> was, was you say that when people underestimate their lifespans, they're less optimistic about the future and less open to trying new things. One of my favorite things details in your book is you describe this counterclockwise study done by Ellen Langer in 1981 yes. at Harvard, who created a, quote,
2: living time capsule. <laughs> do, you, do you want to share this? It's so cool. She took a bunch of people in their 70s and, and mostly in their 70s and some 80s, I think, um, and they she retrofitted a home. Uh, out in the country, such that everything in the home was sort of a time capsule to the past, whether it was Elvis Presley music or it was sports memorabilia on the wall from from a different era, et cetera. And for a week, she had these you know seniors living in this home that had all of that nostalgia. And what happened was because they sort of went back to an era in which they were younger, The study basically found that the psychology of aging was that if you can help people to feel youthful again, you can actually help them to live longer.
1: Yeah, you you write in the book. A week later, these these participants had dramatic improvements in their hearing, memory, dexterity, appetite, yes. and well being. You know, so and, and it's and it shows how much of this is psychological. So how how do you think of yourself? This is also related to the like the stories that we tell ourselves about mm-hmm. ourselves matter profoundly, don't they?
2: Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really interesting about midlife is. It's like if you are reading a novel a quarter of the way through the novel, you're not exactly sure all the characters and where it's going. But halfway through Um. the novel, you've got it. You understand where it's going. And that's sort of like halfway through life. By halfway through life, you can have enough pattern recognition of who you are and how you've shown up. And you've built some recognition and wisdom about yourself that understanding your narrative, understanding who you are and how you are, Um, allows you to have a better sense of the through line of where you're going. That is one of the gifts of midlife is to be able to have enough years behind you to understand, you know, what you've learned along the way. Uh, I I, I like to say that um, your painful life lessons are the raw material for your future wisdom. So the longer you've been on the planet the more raw material you have. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that as a 70-year-old, you're wiser than a 30-year-old because you may have had those life lessons, but you didn't metabolize it or digest it in such a way to understand what you learned along the way. So the key there is to say, how do we help people metabolize their wisdom? Something I've been doing since age 28, so for 35 years So when I was 28, I had been running my boutique hotel company for two years. I was a complete imbecile. I, I was running a boutique hotel company, but had no background in hotels. Um but the hotel got off, my first hotel got off to a, a good start. We ultimately had 52 hotels but this first, first one got off to a good start and then we had the Loma Prieta earthquake which happened in the bay area and the bay bridge almost mm-hmm. you know part of it fell down and so no one was coming to the bay area for you know 6 months and I had one hotel wow. and it was empty. And so I limped into the weekend one one weekend thinking like oh my god <laughs> what am I going to do and I ended up taking a journal off the wall or off the bookshelf, and I hadn't written in it. And I wrote on the cover of it, my wisdom book. And I started a practice that I would recommend people consider. And it's also valuable for leadership teams. Every weekend, I would make a list of some bullet points of what I'd learned that week, um, personally or professionally, partly with the intention of just trying to understand what my life lesson has been. Because again, if if your life lessons are raw material for future wisdom, you know being conscious and intentional about it is helpful. But what if you were to do that with a leadership team? And I've done this at Joie de Vivre, at Airbnb, and at MEA, where once a quarter, I sit down with the, our leadership team in a, a normal weekly session, maybe an hour or two hour session. And every person on the team, eight or 10 of us, comes together and says, like, here was my biggest lesson of the quarter. And here's how it's going to serve me in the future. You know, wisdom is not taught, it's shared. And so the fact that my director of operations is talking about something he learned in his career, I can take advantage of that. I can learn from him. So long story short is I am a big believer in the fact we're moving into the wisdom economy because we've been in the knowledge economy mm-hmm. for 60 or mm-hmm. 70 years. And it was Peter Drucker in 1959 who said the future of the workplace is going to be owned by knowledge workers. And he was right. And knowledge management as a practice became a thing. And I believe that wisdom management practices are going to become a thing. And and I just think wisdom is, is such an important and scarce quality or, you know, something that we need to be focused on. So- Let's talk about age fluidity. I
1: love this phrase, Chip. Uh, I think this is yes. your phrase. Um, what does it mean to be age
2: fluid? So to be age fluid means that you are not defined by a chronological age or generation. You're all the ages you've ever been or will ever be. And you see chronological age is almost like a costume that you can don or take off whenever you want. A 30-year-old could say, I'm age fluid. I'm an old soul. And sometimes I feel like I'm 50 or 60 years old and that's yes, perfectly sure, fine. Sure. So age fluid can be applied to anybody. And e- yes, I like the term. And yes, when I first actually started talking about it, I went to the, the Google and Googled it. And I found that, oh my gosh, to be age fluid means you're a pedophile. <laughs> that was, okay, that was like, that's not that's what, not what mean. <laughs> I mean. And um, so I'm trying to popularize the term and and because most people don't know the fact that. Let's let's take yeah, the let's term back. Let's take the bur- term back yeah, exactly. for
1: the pedophiles. Sorry, guys, we're going to take this one. This is
2: and and, and do you do you feel age fluid? I, oh, I feel so age fluid. Um, when I was at when I was at Airbnb, Rufus, I. Felt very age fluid because yes, I was older, but, but also people then found out like, oh, Chip was a founding member of the Burning Man nonprofit and has been going to Burning yeah. Man for 25 years or Chip started a rock and roll hotel and knows a lot of musicians. And so in some ways people had a hard time categorizing me because I, yeah. I and that's, yeah. I, and I think that's frankly what, uh, if you're curious and wise, if you're that modern elder quality, that is the difference between a modern yes. elder and a traditional elder. The traditional elder of the past had reverence. The modern elder has relevance. And so to be relevant means you actually understand like the context in which you can actually offer your curiosity or your wisdom. But it's it's yeah. it's, the, yeah. it's the reverence piece that, you know, leads to the OK Boomer perspective, which is like okay, boomer, you're telling me how the world works. Um, Your war stories are not necessarily our wisdom and thank you. And I don't need to listen to you anymore. Totally.
1: Yeah. No, I, I, this really resonates for me because I feel both very young and also old Mm. in different Mm. ways, right? I feel young in the sense of being excitable and curious and, and kind of revved up, right? (laughs) Like I'm still, you know, I, I really don't feel, I mean, I'm 56. I don't feel a, Much of a dissipation of energy or anything. But I feel old in the sense of being kind of humble... And unafraid and humble before the finiteness of time, before the universe, like prudently cautious. Like I don't need to jump off cliffs when I'm skiing. Mm, yeah, you know? <laughs> like I, I, I like respect respect the body. Like I, I I feel sort of uncategorizable in this in this sense of, uh, of of age. And I think yeah, age fluidity to me really resonates. And and I think it's I think it's exciting to know for younger people to know and and older people that that uh, that we can be at once frisky young uh in our behavior and and also uh sort of you know thoughtful and reflective and humble and actually to me chip this is this notion that i think the best discovery for me uh in in my second half of my life i guess in midlife is realizing that you can become more confident and more humble at Mm. the same time and in fact and in fact humility is on some level the the, the,
2: these two things grow uh together you know um I'm in New Mexico right now in Santa Fe because we're opening our campus here, and uh, I sometimes say being in New Mexico, which is you know almost like not being in the United States, it's a, it's an unusual place. I, I say that I I believe in my HP here, and I don't necessarily mean just higher power. I mean humility and patience, and when you show up, especially if you're older, with humility and and patience you're more present and uh, and it's also sometimes a surprise to people, uh, especially in a culture where mm-hmm. uh, there's a reverence for elders. Um, so uh, listen, I love, uh, you know, Richard, Richard Rohr is on our faculty, famous Christian mystic based here in New mm-hmm. Mexico. He says, you know what, what we all need is a humiliation a day, just not serious, <laughs> just not, just not a serious humiliation. <laughs> right, right.
1: Yeah, you know what? One area in which I feel um, somewhat conflicted about my aging process, mm. like <laughs> as, as 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 much as I have been sort of grateful for the aging process. Um, I, I will admit, Chip, that the idea of like fifty-six teetering on the brink of fifty-seven, I'm staring down sixty. The idea of being sixty is an adjustment for me mentally. Mm-hmm, like <laughs> it's mm-hmm. right. Like I, in terms of how I think of myself, right? Because because that's not like fifty was an adjustment. The, the prior decades didn't really bother me at all. Right. Um, but it, it it is a reframing of how how we think about ourselves. And and one change I notice in myself is. I'm less focused on trying to take over the world, like <laughs> be on the cover of magazines. Yeah, I remain really interested in building things, right, mm-hmm. and, and building mm-hmm. things hopefully at scale, but but very much in, in as in a partnership with other people, helping people build things. Yeah, m- you know, mission focus. And I, but I occasionally catch myself saying in my inside voice, "Well, if this or that doesn't work out, no big deal. There, there's seven other things I'm passionate about." And then I think, "Wait a second, Rufus, that's the complacency of age. That's not okay. Don't lose the ferocious tenacity of youth." Right? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm a little bit kind of torn on this topic of like uh, of of how I, my relationship with ambition mm-hmm. in this phase of my life. How How do you think
2: about that? I, well, as someone who's what, was ambitious when I was young and still ambitious when I'm older. Yeah, The ambitious takes on a different flavor. Um, yeah. And I would say a couple of things. Number one is Richard Rohr, who I mentioned earlier, as well as yeah. Carl Jung, both say the same thing, which is the primary operating system of our life in the first half of our life is our ego. And it's what individuates us and propels us forward, helps us to understand who we are in the world. And then it's around midlife that we have a primary operating system change. We move from the ego to the soul, but nobody gave us any operating instructions for this change, nor a a warning that it was coming. And so what's going on for a lot of people, they can feel something inside of them, a curiosity, um, a connection to something bigger than themselves, um, and maybe a a lessening of the ego. I had to learn that it, you know, my timing with going to Airbnb was perfect for this because I had to right-size the ego by the fact that I was no longer the the sage on the stage, I was the guide on the side. I was not going to get, uh, you know, nearly the kind of attention I was getting when I was no, the founder I mean. and CEO of my own company. So the bottom line is that is something psychologically that's going on and maybe even spiritually. Um so that's mm-hmm. one thing. Secondly, you know, if we live a, a beautiful life and we have a collection of other things in our lives. We start to realize that no one thing is going to sink us, and we stop sweating the small stuff as much. Um, it is, you know, when you when you're a 14 year old and your best friend breaks up with you, you feel like your your life's going to end, uh, yeah. or, or you just sort of you 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 get traumatized by it, and you have a lot of exclamation points, a lot of exaggeration, hyperbole. When you get older, you've you've seen your life, and you've seen the ups and the downs, and. You weather the storm better. It's not, I mean, the U-Curve of Happiness, sometimes people say like, well, that doesn't make sense, Chip. U-Curve of Happiness doesn't make sense because frankly, people go through a lot more bad circumstances after 50. Yes, but you actually learn how to metabolize it and that you're going to get through it and you don't like catastrophize everything like you did when you were younger.
1: midlife needs a rebrand like whoever the publicist is for, for <laughs> we gotta fire and, and rehire right I mean basically getting an aARP card in the mail <laughs> at age 50 is very few people are delighted to receive that card in the mail right despite yes. how char yes. how, how lovely the the, the the duffel bag is that you get with your subscription so do we need to um uh, I, I mean I imagine there's there's a there's space for a number of different new kinds of institutions institutions, new kinds of societal organizations, changes to how our companies operate. What? How do you see the evolution f- from a society-wide perspective of, of, of becoming wiser as a society and supporting all of us through these transitions?
2: Well, we need to create more intergenerational collaboration on all levels, politically, uh, career-wise, in, in the workplace. So that's one thing. And, and you know, uh, I'll start with just companies. Companies need to be using metrics at looking at age within their companies. They look at how do you, how do you, elevate stories of people across generations who are solving really vexing problems for the company. How do we create mentorship, mutual mentorship programs such that someone older who understands how to run a great meeting um, can teach a younger person that while the younger person can teach the older person how to use their iPhone or, or all of the utility opportunities in their iPhone that they don't even know exists. So how do we create mutual mentorship matching in companies Mm -hmm. or in society? That's great. Um, How do we help to elevate the idea of people saving not for their retirement and saving not necessarily, I mean, they can do that too and save for their kids' education, but save for their own midlife education. How do we help make that become sort of a, a basic premise? How do we help people to see like what gets better with age and and then how do we know if that is true? For example, if wisdom is a, a really valuable quality, how do we create wisdom management practices like the one I mentioned earlier mm-hmm, with the Wisdom mm-hmm. Journal in such a way that people actually are getting wiser? Because wisdom you know, wisdom is different than being savvy or smart. Being savvy or smart can be metabolizing your life lessons for your own selfish benefit. And that's great. Nothing wrong with that. But wisdom is a social good. And so when wisdom as someone who's wise is different than someone who's smart or savvy. And so when we actually elevate wisdom as a society and help more people become wise, we're actually helping society as a whole. And so that's part of the reason why I think midlife wisdom schools like MEA being the first in the in the in the world um, are gonna become a bigger deal. We're gonna see more of these uh, in the next, you know, few decades. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How do you think, Chip, about
1: the wisdom afforded by the deathbed perspective I used to force myself to sort of like once a year go through an exercise of saying like, okay, Rufus, you've got 12 months to live, 18 yeah. months to live, you know 24 months to live. what are you gonna do? And when I ran that experiment, I found that well if it was only 12 or 18 months I'd quit my job, spend time with my favorite people and and do a lot of writing and reading and 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 be very focused on sort of people and the arts but I love my work, right? And so I don't want to quit my job. So I found that if I extended that out to five to 10 years, I would start getting better answers, mm. right? About that were more useful about how to integrate um, some of the things that were most important to me in my life. How, how do how do you think about sort of how critical? I mean, I mean, arguably, the deathbed perspective is what makes us wiser as we get older. That we sure that we're conscious of this finiteness.
2: Yeah, and it's it's called memento mori uh, in Stoic times, and it's, it's the idea of understanding mortality or death as an organizing principle for life, as Steve Jobs once said. Um, and what I think is is valuable at, from a social research perspective, um, just know that Laura Karstensen at Stanford Center on Longevity has studied this. And she's shown that when people have a shorter amount of time left, they get less focused on the future, more focused on the present moment, what matters, and in so doing, by focusing on the present moment and what matters, they actually are happier. So weirdly, having less time ahead of you makes you more happy today. So, so much of it comes down to how you reprioritize your life. For me, you know, I I have stage three prostate cancer and I found that out. I found out I had stage one, five and a half years ago. Then it went to stage two, three years ago. And now it went to stage three. And so in 2023, I was... Man, I was doing, you know, uh, hormone depletion therapy so I only had 1% of my normal testosterone. I had my prostate taken out. I had 36 radiation sessions. So it was a, it was a tough year. And so coming face to face with my mortality and thinking of cancer as a teacher not as yeah, a gladiator, yeah. not as somebody I'm going to get in the the ring with and kill, but more like, okay, Cancer, what are you going to teach me? Helped me to see like what were my priorities, and I have sons who are 12 and nine uh, with uh, oh. you know a lesbian couple who are good friends, and it's like I, I gotta, I want to spend more time with the boys, and so that became a thing. I, I want to have more time to focus on things a, outside of my career. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to spend more time with my parents. So sometimes, you know, uh, as Viktor Frankl talked about in his book, Man's Search for Meaning of Being in a Concentration Camp in World War II, despair equals suffering minus meaning. Suffering sort of an ever-present, yeah, it's right, always going to be there. I love that. But yeah. despair and meaning are inversely proportional. And I wrote about this in my book, Emotional Equations, and the idea that, like, okay... When you're going through a really tough time, you have to look for the meaning and the hope, because if you can do that, you can get through the worst of times. Um, So I I just think that's a, a key lesson when it comes to mortality. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and how's your, how's your health now? How are how are you doing? Well, I'm back on the um, hormone depletion after having been off it for a month, which was sort of a bummer. So I, so I, here's my story, uh, Rufus. I finished on January 12th, my last radiation session and doing them daily uh, for almost two months. And so for five days a week, and then I got on a plane uh, the next day and I was on my way to New York because two days later, I was on the Good Morning America show. The next day, my book came out. The next day, I was on the Today Show, and two days later, I was with your wife um, at her uh, swell the swell event, sex symposium event. Sex symposium. <laughs> spe- speaking <laughs> at it. So, I mean, I luckily I I have the energy, um, but th- w- what a complicated time. But the good news is I had I've had a lot of time to reflect on again cancers as a teacher and you know, how do I set myself up such that if, yeah, if cancer got worse for me, you know, what will survive me? And, you know, one of the things is my books and my and MEA, and of course, the influence I've had on others, including my sons. Well, Chip Conley, thank you so much for being
1: with us today. Such a, such a wonderful conversation.
2: An honor, Rufus. Thank you.
1: Chip Conley's new book, Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better With Age is out now. If you'd like to learn more about the Modern Elder Academy, go to meawisdom.com. You heard Chip reference my wife, Elise's company, The Swell. I'd like to take this opportunity to give my wife a little shout out. The Swell is a growing community for women 40 plus that reimagining how we age. They host events across the country and soon around the world and they're building an online learning platform. To learn more, go to theswell.com. What did you think of this episode? What do you think of this show in general? We'd love to hear from you. Record your thoughts in a voice memo and send it to podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. If you're one of the first three people we hear from, we'll give you a free digital membership to the Next Big Idea Club. With that, you'll be able to listen to this show ad-free hear hundreds of nonfiction book summaries written and read by the authors themselves, and you can enjoy exclusive content from our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, and Daniel Pink. Today's episode was produced and edited by Caleb Bissinger. Sound designed by Mike Toda. The Next Big Idea is a proud member of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.